Thank you for downloading this audio edition of a complete chapter from the volume entitled On Common Ground, International Perspectives on the Community Land Trust. I'm John Emmius Davis, one of the book's editors, along with my colleagues Lena Algood and Maria Hernandez-Torales. On Common Ground was published in June 2020 by Terra Nostra Press, a division of the Center for CLT Innovation. We hope that you enjoy the following program. Chapter 20, The London Community Land Trust, a story of people, power and perseverance, written and read by Dave Smith. Ponty's isn't there anymore. It was this little Italian cafe which hung from the rafters of Liverpool Street train station, one of London's considerably more perfunctory termini, which sits on the boundary of where the historic city of London meets what is commonly known as the East End. Ponty's was never famous for very much, really, although reportedly its full English breakfast and coffee wasn't that bad. But in 1996, it did star, albeit very briefly, as a setting for a conversation between two of the leading protagonists in a new Hollywood film that was to be called Mission Impossible. So it's rather apt, perhaps, that it was also here, in the late summer of 2008, that the initial conversation about a potential site for London's first ever community land trust took place. This is the story of that site, St Clement's Hospital, and of the people and organisation who, over the next 10 years, fought so long and so hard to turn that initial conversation at Ponty's into the permanently affordable CLT homes that stand there today. But whilst it's a good story in very many ways, it lacks what is perhaps the key ingredient of any great story, namely a definitive and happy ending. Not because there haven't been some real highs and lasting achievements within the organisation's first decade, there have been many, but because what has also emerged during this time is just the sheer scale and deepening extent of the housing crisis and how desperately the CRT's work is needed. And so it's unlikely that this story will come to an end anytime soon. Today, the London CRT has active campaigns relating to 12 potential further sites across the capital. Based upon its most conservative projections, the organisation is now on track to deliver some 110 new permanently affordable homes by 2022. This will see upwards of 300 people living in CLT homes in part of the city as far distant as Croydon and Redbridge, in places of such historical and cultural significance as Cable Street and Brixton, and maybe even on the Olympic Park site. But with over 8,500 people still sleeping rough every year, with 365,000 children under the age of 16 still living in accommodation that is legally deemed overcrowded, and with over 240,000 households still on government waiting lists for affordable housing in what is one of the wealthiest cities in the world, St Clement's was only ever going to be able to be considered a success if it was merely the beginning of a much longer story, laying the foundation for a CLT that could do even more in the future. An unaffordable city, a brief history. The history of the housing crisis in London, and especially in the city's East End, where London CLT got its start, is nothing new. Charles Booth, the great Victorian social researcher and reformer, in his famed Poverty Maps of 1891, described some of the neighbouring streets around what is now the St Clement's site as being typified by the, quotes, very poor, casual, chronic want. Where the Victorian slums had dominated, Post-war governments of all political colours took the opportunity afforded to them by the Luftwaffe to remake vast swathes of the East End following the annihilation of its Docklands between 1939 and 1945. In their place were built large-scale social housing estates, concrete monoliths promising streets in the sky. 
Local politicians look to outbid each other in regards to the number of new homes they promise to build during each election cycle. This interventionist consensus, broadly speaking, remained the case until the end of the 1970s, when Horace Cutler, who was the chairman of housing and later leader of the Conservative Party in the Greater London Council, and then Margaret Thatcher actively sought to curb the ability of local councils to build subsidised public housing in an attempt to reduce their political opponent's power base. The effect was that the overall number of new homes being built in London, and particularly the number of affordable homes being built, fell off a cliff edge, down from about 35,000 a year in total in 1969 to fewer than 14,000 a year in 1985. The private sector, thoroughly aware of the impact that a decrease in supply would have on its own profitability, never picked up the slack. So prices began to raise in relation to earnings, albeit in a relatively moderate rate at first, as a great legacy of the welfare state clung on and the economic volatility of the 1980s gave way to the recession of the early 1990s. This picture changed, however, in the closing years of the 20th century. With an economic recovery, coupled with the election of a new Labour government in 1997 and a belief in all things third way, the British housing market embarked upon a record run of unbroken economic growth that would last for 15 years. These were boom times. One of the nation's largest mortgage lenders, Northern Rock, demutualised to become a bank in the same year. It infamously offered 120% loan-to-value interest-only mortgages for first-time buyers, a sign that both the bank and the home buyer were convinced that the property market would rise indefinitely. As such, borrowers were encouraged to take out a loan for more than the home's value, spend the extra capital on moving in and furnishing costs, and then plan to never repay the capital sum, believing that all the while they could make money out of the property's appreciation. House prices in London rose from an average of 96,000 in 1997 to over £300,000 just 10 years later. The global economic crash of 2008 took its toll briefly, but by the summer of 2012, house prices were back to where they'd been previously and quickly rose again. As of 2019, the average house price, the geometric mean, across the whole city of 8 million people, the average stood at £478,853 about $630,000. This was approximately 14 times the average Londoner's salary of £34,000, which is about $44,000, and nearly twice that of the national average house price, which was £243,000, or about $320,000. All this in a country that is known to have a nationwide housing crisis. Community organising around London's bid to host the 2012 Olympics. The impact of these macroeconomic trends was plain for all to see at street level. In East London, at meetings of the East London Communities Organisation, or TELCO as it was then known, the country's first and now largest community organising federation, known today as Citizens UK, stories poured forth about the crippling costs of rent and home ownership markets that are out of reach. Following its earlier transformative success with the Living Wage campaign, Neil Jameson, Telco's founding executive director, who had trained under the Industrial Areas Foundation in the late 1980s and exported Saul Alinsky's organising model to the UK, decided that housing needed to be a central plank of the organisation's new agenda. And a prime organising opportunity soon appeared in the summer of 2005, thanks to a meeting taking place 6,000 miles away in Singapore. London had recently declared its intention to bid for host city status for the 2012 Summer Olympic Games. Sensing their chance to leverage influence within a formative political debate, and especially given the desire of the authorities to secure local support for a bid that was premised on the promise of a legacy of regeneration for East London, amidst an anticipated total spend of some £8.7 billion, 
Telco forced itself into a relationship with the London 2012 bid team and invited the team to one of Telco's public assemblies. Built on a foundation of thousands of one-to-one conversations within trades unions, churches, mosques, schools and other civic institutions across East London, the result of the organising effort was the preparation and public signing of an ethical charter for the Games. This agreement guaranteed a defined set of community benefits in exchange for Telco's support for the Olympic bid. Amongst them was a commitment to new jobs and the payments of a living wage for all staff at the Olympics. And in point four, there was also a commitment to build, once the Games were over, quotes, 2012 permanently affordable homes for local people through a community land trust and mutual home ownership. The announcement by the International Olympic Committee in Singapore on July 6, 2005, that it was London that was to be awarded the right to host the Games of the 30th Olympiad, was largely unexpected and met with mixed emotions across the British capital. Paris had been widely expected to win, and many Londoners greeted with the news with a combination of stereotypically British disdain and reserve, as well as newfound fears about the implication for where they would be able to park their cars. But for those in Telco, the mood couldn't have been happier. The ethical charter for the Games had been signed by none other than Lord Sebastian Coe, the head of the bid team and now chairman of the London Organising Committee for the Olympic and Paralympic Games, or LOCOG as it was known, and by the Mayor of London, Ken Livingston. The agreement looked to ensure that London's first CLT was a done deal and headed for rapid success in the years to come. But sadly, and perhaps inevitably, as so often happens when land and power and money are involved, this was not to be the case. Broken promises. Little communication was received from the bid team after the announcement in Singapore. The newly formed Olympic Delivery Authority, the ODA, then ignored the agreement with Telco, refused to meet with Telco's representatives and even claimed that the ethical charter was not their concern since the ODA had not been in existence when the agreement was signed. Some mild and well-mannered agitation from Telco followed, including gatherings outside the ODA's meetings. The authority responded with a letter in 2006 that stated that, whilst the charter and commitment to a CLT was still an aspiration of theirs, the ODA viewed the agreement as nothing more than a memorandum of general understanding, quotes, in principle, and subject also to the, quotes, considerations of delivery. As such, after the Games, any highly prized land at the Olympic Park would be considered for development of CLT homes only if there was a working pilot which could be established elsewhere in the city beforehand as functioning proof of the concept for this unfamiliar model. What was becoming increasingly clear was that waiting for the Olympic authorities and city officials to deliver London's first CLT was unlikely ever to work, so East London's communities decided to take matters into their own hands. On a bright and sunny morning in July 2007, Telco descended on the land immediately opposite London City Hall, pitched 50 tents and refused to move until Mayor Ken Livingston came out and promised to make some land available for a CLT pilot scheme. After much toing and froing, first from his staff and then from the Mayor himself, Livingston appeared and pledged that a site would be made available. After snapping some smiling pictures, everybody left, convinced once more that progress towards London's first ever CLT was being made. The land that Livingston eventually proposed, however, was a disused industrial path called Bowlock on the very eastern edge of the borough of Tower Hamlets, a forgotten space between a main artillery road and the River Lee. The chief problem, however, as Telco later discovered, was that the land promised by the mayor was not actually in his gift. Rather than belonging to his office, the land belonged to the local council, which was far less keen on the idea of the land being given away. And so, despite four years of campaigning, come the beginning of 2008, the campaign was back to square one, and a new site needed to be found. 
The Meeting at Pontes. It was around this time that the campaign decided it needed to professionalise in terms of its housing expertise and employ a slightly different organisational structure beyond just the broad-based community organising tactics it had previously utilised. In response to the cry of give us some land, the repost from those in power at the authority and at City Hall become clear. What land? And to whom? You expect us just to give land to that rabble waving placards? The East London Citizens Community Land Trust Limited had been founded in 2007, but up until now it had just been a campaign. Neil Jameson, Telco's Executive Director, along with Matthew Bolton, the lead organiser for East London, had long been on the lookout for allies who could help them put a firmer structure in place. Amongst those they discovered was Stephen Hill, a long-established and well-respected housing expert who, after years of working for a number of social housing organisations and public bodies, had taken to doing what he described as, quote, only the interesting and worthwhile work from now on, as a freelance contractor. By chance, he'd briefly been employed by the Olympic planners, helping them to run some public workshops around potential uses for the Olympic Park after the Games. It was at one of these meetings, when Telco had arrived yet again to make a nuisance to themselves, that Stephen quietly mentioned to Neil and Matthew afterwards that he was very much on their side. He offered to meet up and to see if there was anything he might be able to do to help to move things forward. Around the same time, Telco appointed its first dedicated housing community organiser, a 22-year-old named Dave Smith. He had recently returned from a stay in Massachusetts where he was volunteering on the Barack Obama primary campaign and was eager to become involved in community organising like that that he'd read about going on in the US. In Neil Jameson's words, he quotes, simply wouldn't leave us alone. And this was, by all accounts, Smith's chief and perhaps only qualification for being offered the job. Nevertheless, he set about trying to formalise the campaign and search for a new site. However, given Telco's very limited resources, he could only be paid to work on the campaign one day a week. So the rest of the time was spent keeping bar at a local pub called The Little Driver, which was at the end of the road that he lived in in Bow. Each Monday, he would walk the mile or so to Telco's offices in Whitechapel to meet with the formative campaign membership that Telco began to pull together, heading along the Mile End Road and past a disused hospital site called St Clement's. His introduction to the new job was short, a two-day seminar on Alinsky and organising and a list of three names of people to meet with. Top of that list was Stephen Hill, who suggested that they meet for a coffee at Ponty's Cafe in Liverpool Street train station. The campaign to acquire St Clement's. At the very first meeting, Stephen and Dave discussed the prospect of acquiring the boarded-up St Clement's Hospital site as the potential home for London's first CLT. Designed by a renowned local architect, Richard Tress, and constructed in 1849 for £55,000, a princely sum at that time, the building had had a succession of occupants and uses over the years. It had originally operated as a workhouse for the poor, with accommodation for some 800 inmates. It boasted Siberian marble pillars, a chapel with stained glass, and an elegant board of guardians rooms for those who oversaw its operations. As workhouses were phased out throughout the country, it became the Bow Infirmary in 1874, and then was renamed the Bow Institution in 1912, caring for the long-term sick. The building had become a psychiatric unit in 1936, under the new name of St Clement's Hospital and despite being heavily bombed during the Second World War, it remained a sight to behold, until eventually it closed its doors in 2005. Ownership of the land and the buildings then reverted to the National Health Service, the NHS, and then to the office of the Mayor of London. The site then sat vacant for years, waiting for its planned sale for private housing development. 
Walking along the Mile End Road in 2009, Dave Smith had noticed a vacant building. Despite it being weathered and derelict, it remained architecturally impressive. But from a community organiser's point of view, the site was even more special. It straddled the almost exact midpoint of the road running from central London out to the proposed site for the Olympic Games. And as he later recalled, quotes, It was at the heart of our power base, surrounded by our member institutions. And above all else, it just had the capacity to take the campaign out of the abstract, away from the theory and policy and root it in a sense of place for families who needed somewhere to call home. They could actually see themselves potentially living there. And from the moment we first set our eyes on it, the campaign really took off. The newly revitalised campaign group met for the first time on a cold winter's Saturday in November in a flat overlooking the muddy expanse that was set to become the Olympic Park. The group had identified four potential sites. A vote on which of these to pursue was taken a few weeks later in a second meeting at Bryant Street Methodist Church in Stratford, but there was never any question about which site was going to win. Unanimously, the campaign group chose St Clement's as its target for developing London's first CLT homes. Soon after, the campaign took another giant step with the arrival on the scene of Chris Brown, the chief executive of an ethical property developer named Igloo Regeneration. East London CLT had no track record, little direct development expertise, and only just enough money to pay its one-person staff for one day a week. This fledgling organisation needed to quickly transform itself to be able to competitively tender for prime real estate worth tens of millions of pounds in one of the UK's hottest housing markets. The newly elected board, drawn mostly from its community organising base, met with Chris Brown and entered into a partnership with Igloo Regeneration. Over the next year, this highly progressive developer and the CLT's board collaborated in developing both a competitive housing proposal and a high-profile political campaign to win the tender. As soon as Brown's team were on board, architects were appointed, plans were drawn up, financial modelling was commissioned and the bid to build London's first CLT homes was in full motion at last. The CLT's founding chairman, Paul Regan, later said, Few did more in those early days than Chris Brown and Stephen Hill throughout to drag our pipe dream of acquiring St Clement's from a well-meaning long shot to a viable proposition. It was also around this time that a talented young architect named Callum Green, who would later go on to lead the organisation in future years, joined the staff team. Pioneering the CLT's community-led design work, he and Dave worked together over the three years that followed as the tender process was drawn out and the East London CLT was given a classic lesson in the trials and tribulations of community-led development. Reluctant bureaucrats at City Hall sought to temper the public commitments made in front of citizens' assemblies by Mayor Ken Livingstone and subsequently by Mayor Boris Johnson. The tender documents were reissued approximately 15 times. The multinational private developers who were bidding for the contract also set up a pseudo one-person, quote, CLT in order to try and win the competition from their perspective. But London CLT persisted, continually building their organisation, their political campaign. The CLT worked closely with local civic institutions in Tower Hamlets, including Darul Umma and the East London Mosque. Students at Queen Mary University of London, under the tutelage of Professor Jane Wills, studied the site and assembled data that could be used in planning its redevelopment for low-income families. And the CLT's Vice-Chair, Colin Glenn, and his Black Majority New Testament Church of God in Mile End, hosted boisterous annual general meetings, which kept the CLT membership and the general public informed and enthused about the campaign. Compromise on everything except your principles and winning. The eventual outcome of the tender was a political compromise. It was decided by the Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, that the ownership of the St Clement's site should go only in part to East London CLT. This was undoubtedly a win for the organisation, 
and set it up on the path to becoming the largest community land trust in the United Kingdom. But sadly, he also ruled out the East London CLT and Igloo regeneration bid and said that would not win the contract to win the site. Instead, the city awarded the contract to a private developer called Linden Homes. But because of the political stir the CLT had caused, including coverage on the front page of the London Evening Standard newspaper, the selection of Linden Homes was conditional on the developer being able to strike a deal with East London CLT to integrate a specific number of resale-restricted CLT homes into the new development. The pressure from City Hall to build a new relationship and to make this work quickly was now on, but so too was the pressure from the local community to strike a deal that stayed true to the CLT's promises and original purpose. An all-member open meeting of the East London CLT was thus called in the Methodist Church opposite the St Clement's site to discuss the forthcoming negotiation with the private developer. The CLT would get 23 homes, slightly fewer than it had sought in the original bid. It would also be forced to abandon its relationship with Igloo Regeneration and team up with the new developer with whom the CLT had no prior relationship in order to deliver a scheme that was drastically different from the CLT's community-led designs. On the other hand, the option on the table was still significant. Andy Schofield, a founding CLT board member and later one of the CLT's project directors, led the open meeting. A hundred people participated in a formal discussion of what they felt a CLT must be, what a CLT could be, and what a CLT could not be. Inspired by their community organising training, which draws upon the lessons of Thucydides in a debate between the Athenians and the islanders of Melos, East London CLT members collectively crafted a negotiating position that reflected their priorities. They decided three things. The CLT must deliver permanent affordability. The St Clement's project should be based upon the principles of community-led design, so the site plan proposed by the developers should be revisited and redrawn and the CLT's homes must not be controlled or managed by other parties. With the battle lines drawn, the chair of the board and the director of East London CLT headed into their first meeting with the executives of Linden Homes in a hotel just opposite Buckingham Palace. The CLT's representatives had a magnificent platform from which to press their case, due to the power of ordinary citizens organising. Three hours later, with all of the CLT's conditions met, the deal for London's first community land trust project was signed. It was April 2012. Three lessons for CLTs everywhere. The story goes on from here. Through a series of community-led design charrettes and a total redesign of the site plan, through the planning application process, through the financial and contractual negotiations, to the groundbreaking in March 2014, which featured Mayor Boris Johnson happily driving around on a bulldozer on the site. There are ups and downs along the way, too numerous to tell. But for those of us who went through the whole process, many of whom are still actively involved today in what has since been expanded and renamed so as to become just London CLT, there have been three lessons within our experience that we believe are relevant to the CLT movement worldwide. Number one, a classically English CLT. The first is a reflection upon an incredibly important debate, namely, to what extent should the classic CLT model, with its history, its proven track record, but also its chiefly American practices and legal construct, be open to interpretation and change in other countries? And how should a new organisation find the appropriate balance between adapting the model to meet local conditions, whilst maintaining a common sense of understanding of the model's features and purpose amongst all the organisations that wish to call themselves a CLT? Definitions and explanations of the CLT model in the UK are inherently ambiguous, and intentionally so. When the Community Land Trust was first written into law as part of the Housing and Regeneration Act of 2008, 
The CLT pioneers who drafted the legislation did so in a manner they believed would allow CLTs to be expansive and innovative. Their proposal was adopted with minimal alteration. As a result, there were no statutory requirements for a CLT to follow the classic model as it evolved in the United States, nor was there any mention in the law of the necessity of ensuring permanent affordability. The law said only that a CLT was, quote, to ensure that the assets are not sold or developed except in a manner which the trust members think benefits the local community. A case could be made that such organisational ambiguity, where a CLT may be organised and operate in a number of ways, has been essential to the growth and success of CLTs in the UK. The London CLT chose very consciously, however, to adopt many of the traits of the classic model. Outward-looking, it drew a clear line of distinction between CLTs and established housing associations and co-ops in the UK, which had long provided affordable home ownership of various types, but which didn't involve the community in the same way. The result was an organisation that is structured as closely to the classic CLT as possible within the legal confines of the UK system. In fact, the London CLT follows the American tradition more closely than any other CLT currently established in the UK. This was not without its problems. In many ways, there were tasks that would probably have been more quickly and readily achieved had the organisation entirely anglicised its structures. But the organisers, leaders and members of London CLT felt that a too drastic departure from the classic model would excessively distance themselves from a growing international CLT movement. They felt strongly aligned to that movement, so they wanted to promote a structure and purpose that were consistent with most other CLTs around the world. The resulting arrangements, at least on paper, can look somewhat messy. The tripartite composition of the CLT's board does not always resonate immediately with members and needs constant explaining. And leaseholder laws in the UK mean that owning the land outright is both far less common and less simple than elsewhere. London CLT does not actually own the freehold at St Clement's in the same way that other CLTs elsewhere might expect. But in terms of local property laws, this is a technicality rather than a meaningful distinction. And as such, we've come to conclude, much like John Davis said on several visits to London CLT, that CLT organisers must confront the difficult challenge of finding the right balance between adopting the classic model and adopting the model to their own peculiar local and national circumstances for the sake of balancing practical challenges and maintaining a movement worldwide. Davis went on to say, quotes, It was absolutely essential for us in the United States to develop a common language, a common understanding of what a CLT is. Without that, it's hard to distinguish the CLT from competing models, competing traditions. It was hard to draw people together under the banner of CLTs until there was a common vocabulary. Conversely, once you have an agreement as to what a CLT is, it gives you the freedom to innovate within the structure and to improve the classic model. But if you modify too much, you risk severing the connection to our roots and to our values and the sense of purpose and struggle that comes from that. So a common understanding of the model creates a yardstick of values and performance against which you can assess a proposed innovation and whether or not that will help or hinder. Number two, linking house prices to local wages to create true affordability. The second lesson we learned is the importance of locally determined definitions of the term affordable housing. In the UK, following changes made by the national government in 2010, the term affordable housing has become a source of derision, having been adjudicated in law to mean anything up to 80% of the open market rate, which in London is nowadays rarely affordable to anybody. As such, the term has lost all meaning. Yet, in the first instance, the London CLT had planned to devise its sales values in a similar way. 
The original plan had been to sell fixed capped equity shares at approximately 60% of the open market value. That changed in October 2011, when board members and staff from London CLT attended the National CLT Conference in the United States. As part of that conference, after a long boat journey from Seattle to Opal Community Land Trust in the San Juan Islands, the visitors from London had an in-depth conversation with Lisa Byers, Opal's executive director. Thoughtful and eloquent in her exposition, she extolled the virtues of linking the cost of homes, not to any percentage of the open market value, quotes, which we all accept as an inherently broken and unrelated assessment of what people on local wages can afford, and trying instead to tie it to a multiplier of average local incomes. This was a transformative moment for London CRT, for it not only provided a clear mechanism for its stated aim of delivering truly affordable housing, but also provided the CLT with a unique and compelling narrative for what it was about. It was about homes that local people on local wages could afford. Back home, those on the trip crunched the numbers and after a lot of work with local groups to gut check the impact of the new resale formula, established their own wholly unique but quite brilliant mechanism by which the homes were to be sold. Prices were to be determined by A, taking the median wage in the area in which the homes were built, B, applying their principle that no family should be forced to spend more than a third of their income on housing, and then C, multiplying this figure out by a standard set of mortgage assumptions, 25 years at an average interest rate with a 10% down payment. This calculation yielded a price that local people could genuinely afford to pay, a price that was created by working backwards from their own circumstances rather than being derived from failed markets. If residents ever chose to move, they were bound to apply the same formula in calculating the resale price for their homes. CLT house prices would always rise in line with wage inflation, therefore, rather than rising in relation to market-driven house and land prices that are increasingly beholden to the whim of foreign investors or buy-to-leave landlords. The London CLT, which strives not only to be a social justice campaign, but also the best consumer choice available to any median income households, had found its niche with three bedroom homes, including a garden at St Clement's, going on sale for just £235,000, about $295,000, through the CLT, compared to the costs starting at £600,000, or $755,000, for the market rate homes offered literally next door by the private developer, the London CLT had found a defining, replicable and sustainable proposition for permanently affordable housing across the city. Number three. Keeping the community in CLT. The third and most important reflection on this journey is that, above all else, community land trusts must keep the C in CLT. It is this, ultimately, that lies at the heart of the St Clement's story. Community is what gives London CLT its greatest potential for having lasting success, whilst at the same time helping the CLT to stay rooted to its original purpose and promise. In the UK, where the provision of affordable housing has long been established through state-run council housing, it is the CLT's relational rather than bureaucratic culture, its focus on people as individuals rather than numbers that sets it apart. One of the clearest examples of this relational aspect within the St Clement's process came when one of our first residents, a family who had been with the campaign throughout and had passed through all the CLT's allocation process and affordability assessment, was refused a mortgage at the last minute by their lender. This was due to a technicality, based on previous debts which were not wholly theirs. But in such circumstances, the easiest thing to do from, say, a risk management perspective, what most traditional affordable housing providers would have done, would have been to rescind the offer and to go to the next family on the waiting list. 
but the governing body of London CRT took a conscious decision not to do this. Instead, the board spent a lot of time and political capital negotiating with the local authority so as to achieve a planning amendment which allowed the family to rent the property until they could qualify for a mortgage. That way, they could move into their new home and wouldn't have their hopes dashed yet again. The London CLT stands by our people. Our mission starts and ends with them, rather than rigidly following any bureaucratic or abstract quasi-utilitarian definition of housing need. But this family's story also illustrates a further obstacle that London CLT has had to overcome. One of the hallmarks of doing housing development in the UK, and in much of Europe as well, is that it takes a very long time to plan, design, finance and complete every project. This poses an enormous challenge for CRT practitioners. How do you keep prospective homebuyers interested? How do you keep the larger community of members and allies actively engaged throughout? How do you keep your power from bleeding away while waiting for something to get built? In this regard, we would contend that building the organisation is as important as building the homes themselves. London CRT has always put a strong emphasis on its non-housing activities as a way of ensuring that the wider social justice mission is supported and sustained. One of the best examples of this, when trying in the early days to get the local community involved with the redesign of St Clement's, was the work of then board members Kate McTiernan and Lizzie Daish, who, in collaboration with film director and East End resident Danny Boyle, put on the Shuffle Film Festival for the CLT. Held over the course of an entire week, it reopened the St Clement's site to the local community and helped them to re-engage with it, to reimagine what had been a rather sad place and to reconceive of it as a new, accessible and exciting opportunity. The London CLT at St Clement's has never just been about delivering permanently affordable homes. It's more than that. It's about community, social justice and, quite simply, contributing towards happiness in life and emotional well-being. When our very first residents, Hamara and Rahman, and their young baby Eunice, whose parents had immigrated to the East End from Bangladesh in the late 1960s, moved into their new CLT home, you could see just how much it meant to the entire family. In Rahman's own words, quotes, before we moved to St Clement's, we were living with my parents, brother and sister. There were six of us all in one flat. My wife, Hamara, and I shared a room whilst we had a baby on the way. It's not easy to live as a family within a family. It meant my wife felt like she was a stranger in her own home. I remember the day we moved in so well. My whole extended family turned up. It was pouring with rain, but I was beaming inside. There was so much space. I feel really lucky to get our own home here. It's changed my family's life. There was a moment the other day when Hamara, Eunice and I were in the flat and my dad came over. He sat on the sofa with his arms spread and he burst out into singing some sort of oldie goldie traditional Bengali song. My dad only sings when he's feeling at his happiest that he's felt in years. That's how you know when my dad is happy. He doesn't smile, he sings. When you have that sense of space, it opens up your mind. And he felt that and he just let it out. Since then, Hamara has given birth to a little girl, making her first baby born in a London CLT home. There will, we hope, be many more to come. Because the CLT movement, above all else, starts and ends with its people and their lives. Not housing, not resale formulas, or anything else. To that end, there are many people that should be mentioned and thanked. And whilst to write an exhaustive list is impossible, and the injustice of omission is great, it would be wrong not to mention at least the incredible work of a few people along the way including Pablo, Sister Una, Father Sean Connolly, Father Tom O'Brien, David Rogers, Professor Peter Ambrose, Suzanne Gorman, Miranda Housden, Professor Tim Oliver, Father Angus Ritchie, Bethan Lant, Rahana Ali, Nick Jury, Colin Ivamy, Tim Carey, Joe Ball, Jenny Lumley, 
Neil Hunt, Lena Jamal, Emmanuel Gatora, Sebastian Chaplow, Alison Gelder, Ruby Mahira, Nano, Hannah Emery Wright, Ben Cole, Grace Boyle, Charles Campion, Dan Firth, the Butler Family Fund and the Oak Foundation. This is as much their story as it is the story of our residents and the homes that we built. And whilst the first 23 homes at St Clement's may not have been everything that we set out to achieve, and whilst they most definitely haven't solved the housing crisis in our great city, they have proven one thing beyond doubt, that when local communities get together and organise, and when the universal principles of the Community Land Trust are carefully applied, it doesn't matter what city you're in or how challenging the housing market may be, because what we do works and there is no mission impossible. This has been an audio presentation of a published chapter from the book entitled On Common Ground. To order the entire volume of 26 essays authored by scholars and practitioners from a dozen different countries, or to learn more about the International Community Land Trust movement, please visit the website of the Center for CLT Innovation. We can be found at www.cltweb.org. Thank you for listening.